Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to open by complaining about sleep for two episodes <laughs> in a row. But I'm gonna complain about sleep for two episodes in a row. My my cousin, my cousin's daughter told my daughter a bunch of ghost stories. Oh God! And including. <laughs> One that I'd never heard uh, before. Like all of them were ones that I'd heard as kids, and now she won't. She won't sleep. Yeah. So I'll, I'll I'll tell you. So my, our our oldest is now four, uh, which means that like she now has the attention span of an actual human, oh, or no. or is like slowly getting there, and has like recently discovered movies, and like I will tell you, like the Disney movies are terrifying, <laughs> like absolutely terrifying. And like I'm watching these, and I'm like, I I don't want to watch this, <laughs> but like you know, she seemed to be okay, and we fast forwarded through the really scary parts of Frozen. But I was I was also terrified that she was not going to sleep that that night. So I I, I, I empathize with you. Um, she, she she did fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I was just like, I don't understand who thinks this is appropriate for children. Like that movie has like a giant abominable snowman chasing after people and then like nearly falling off a cliff. His name is Marshmallow. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, my hot take is that Tangled is better than Frozen. Yeah. Not not shared by many I, I have I have relatively <laughs> few opinions on this. Uh, I will say that like I will watch Whichever one of those movies will keep my children quiet on an airplane, mm-hmm. uh, and so from for 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 all I know, they could all be equally good or equally terrible. Uh, although I do have an affinity for the ones that existed when I was a kid. I I've watched each. Of, my kids are of the age where I watched each of those like forty five yeah. times. So yeah, hence, I, I, hence, there's like, no escaping having an opinion on yeah. On so. Tangled. So I have now seen Frozen, uh, or at least watched it without sound six or seven times. So. Um, all right. We, we, we're joined by a guest today, um, soon who probably also has opinions on Frozen versus Tangled. Many, many opinions about Frozen and Tangled. Uh, this is uh, Drew Dillon. Drew, welcome. Yep. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. T- uh, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, what you like? Uh, yeah. So I'm uh, my, Drew Dillon. I'm a, a freelance product leader. Uh, what that means is I actually go into kind of early stage uh, product, or early stage organizations that don't have permanent product leadership, and help them kind of get things in shape so that when they're ready, uh, when they're ready to bring on a full time product leader, that everything's kind of uh, in in preparation. That the new product leader doesn't spend the first six months of their job just cleaning up all their processes and how they think about what they need to be building. Um, prior to that, I was a chief product officer at a company called Schedulo, uh, where I ran uh, design, product, and engineering. Um, that's pretty much my MO running a bunch of different teams. Uh, so prior to that, uh, I ran, uh, product engineering, data design, IT, business development, and customer support at a little YC company called Eddie Perk, now called Fond. And then way before that, I worked with, uh, Otis, where I was a product manager at Yammer and he taught me most of what I get wrong. <laughs> we had many productive arguments, including some that I remember losing and still feeling okay about. Uh, There's never anything wrong with losing an argument as long as you learn something. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. no, I, and yeah, and I think for for most of us in that that like it was a, a high learning environment, highly Socratic culture. You couldn't you couldn't say that we were getting everything right all of the time. No. No, there's very no arrogant. Way we were extremely arrogant. <laughs> could you could you say that you were getting anything done all of the time? That for sure. Yeah, we were moving needles. Um, yeah. Just whether you know uh, on revenue and engagement, actually. Yeah. Um, so I, we've brought you here to ambush you. Very good. 
Yes, <laughs> uh, and we we we've gone over a lot of things from the from the ICE point of view. Right. And a lot of things where we're, we're trying to urge ICs to be adaptive and to, like think about the business and like it leans a little bit on the like don't ask for too much side, I think. So now I want to I want to change it up. I, wa- <laughs> I, I want like I don't think we do a good job of holding execs accountable. Yep. And that's partially because we don't have good expectations for them. Like we don't have reasonable expectations for them. So like we we veer wildly in between like just complaining about everything an exec does and just being like, oh, just do what they ask. Like don't don't raise a fuss. Um, but I, th- I think it'd be interesting for, you know, especially with someone who's, who's been in those positions to kind of lay out like what it is that you as like a middle manager or someone who's an individual contributor can reasonably expect from an executive in terms of like setting your work culture, prioritization, and whatever else is out there that I'm missing. Yeah, and then you know I think it would be great as well just to to touch on the the like breadth of the picture that senior leadership might have that is not always visible to the middle to the middle management or the IC layer. Yeah, yeah, that is that is something that is really shocking. The first time you're in the executive like meeting and. People just start, you know, laying things out, and you realize the like um, degree of breadth you have across the company to make a lot of crazy decisions. <laughs> it is really intimidating. <laughs> the first time somebody brings up, like, "Oh, if we don't make that revenue, we might lay people off." You're like, "Whoa, what? <laughs> How did I get in here?" Uh, <laughs> so there, there's that. Uh, like, from the emotional standpoint, I understand two. Like, I can, I from uh, standing back from, and I understand two strong things from, uh, like, from being around execs is. When there's the stress and responsibility and, like, the burden. And the other is, like, the the knowledge that no one else is working as hard as you, probably. <laughs> and what do you do with that? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, the the first thing, you know, I'll, I'll crib a lot of my management stuff off of uh, Patrick Lencioni. Um, he wrote uh, um, yeah. The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and yeah. The Advantage. Um, we used his consulting group, the table group, um, at any perk. And I really liked their um, their methodology, but the the thing, the main takeaway is just that the executive team is a team, yeah. And that's something a lot of companies forget, and you'll see this. It comes out as politics. Uh, when I when you walk in the executive room, uh, that meeting room, you are not. I'm no longer the VP of product or the VP of engineering. I'm an executive of the company there to operate the business, and to that end, I should be advocating for my people in as much as it helps the business to advocate for my people. Um, and so to that end, and I'll say that honestly to my employees as well, like I'm not on the engineering team. I'm not on the product team. I'm on the executive team. I'm here to make sure that you can do your best work and to give you the space and frameworks to let you do your best work. Uh, but I'm, at the end of the day, I'm not advocating 100% for a product or for design. I'm advocating for the company. Yeah, which is funny because, like, I mean, for me, that's also the same thing I've always told ICs mm-hmm. where – you know, it's basically like you're not here for your function. You're here to build a business, which is why you need to think about what the business is doing. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I personally just have a belief that, like, especially in, in a startup context, like that is a mindset that just everybody should be carrying. Uh, and, and to me, like some of the best people will carry that all the way through and essentially say, OK, like I have gotten – this company as far as I can get it. Mm-hmm. And like now it's time for me to be somewhere else. Yep. 
you're not a serf to the company. You don't have to like when the company's interests don't align with what your career goals are, then yeah. like you should be able to part in peace. Is like really useful for both the upper management and for the employees. There's a good book on that one. That's uh, Reed Hoffman, The Alliance. He yeah. talks about basically yeah. you take tours of duty at the end of your tour of duty. Tour of duty is the company wants something out of you. You want something out of the company. You do your tour of duty at the end. You say, okay, did you get what you wanted? Did the company get what they wanted? Cool. Do you, is there something? If you want to do another What one. do you need next? Yeah. And can you do that here? Um, and if not, then we'll help you find your next yeah. job. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of that, of that framework for like evaluating – uh, number one, like, uh, like what, what you like? Where is the appropriate spot for you inside of a company? So essentially, saying, all right, is there an appropriate tour of duty right now? Totally. Uh, and also, just putting endpoints on things and like being upfront and honest about the fact that uh, you know, it, in a stable company or, or in a in in a mature company at scale, like you can sit in the same job for twenty five years if you want. Like in a startup your job probably doesn't exist six months from now. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so like at a certain point you, like you have to be honest about the fact that it's just like, it's a, it, the company changes every six months. It goes through different stages and, uh, and there might not be the right role for every single person. So you, you know, you do what you can to like find them the next thing. Yep. Yep. The biggest challenge I find um, a lot of times is, um, folks who come out of organizations that just end up being more siloed for one reason or the other. Yeah. Um, infrastructure engineer is now a VP level thing and you need to promote an infrastructure as somebody who understands this thing. And this person's only really ever worked with other engineers. And now they need to have opinions about things broadly across the company. Sales is a similar boat. Um, a lot of salespeople are just kind of hired guns and until they get to the VP of sales and now they're the worst VP of sales is the one who was a really good closer. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> they never bothered to learn how to manage people. <laughs> I imagine that's like a, a problem for engineering and product management too. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that like the more the more you're adapted to the particular role that you are doesn't like necessarily mean that it's easy to pivot up. The benefit of product is you um, have to do so much convincing without any authority. So in some, by the time somebody actually gives you authority, you're like, whoa. <laughs> I can do stuff. <laughs> what shall I do with hey, this? Hey, Bang, 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 bang. Mjolnir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the first time I took over an engineering team, that was really – that was something I had to think about a lot. Like they're going to look at me like I'm an untrustworthy product a-hole and I need to like kind of wildly over-rotate towards the engineering side uh, to fix that. Did that Did that help? Like did you – They assumed it anyway, uh, but, you know, I, mm-hmm. I felt good about it in my heart. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, think, I think for a lot of people it's – it's not necessarily actionable to tell them like you have to figure out what's good for the business. Like when you're sitting in a role at, like at the IC level doing stuff and with enough context around you, like it's really hard to tell what's good for the business and what's good for your career. And that's also like just a function of human psychology, right? Like yep. the stuff you want, you tend to like go like, well, why isn't the world just giving me this thing? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so like when when people when people speak up and say, you know, like they try to say to like to Tupper management, like I think we should be doing X. Like like how like is there are there ways that people can do that that makes it like sound better to to the exec? Or is it like a um, is a thing where you're already like you are like as soon as you hear someone say something, you're already starting to feel like oh, okay. I have never heard an idea that I haven't already thought about and discussed <laughs> in those contexts. To be mm-hmm. totally honest, mm-hmm. uh, but the honest, uh, you know, the best way to bring up 
um, suggestions like that. A lot of people will want to grandstand. They'll want to wait till the executives are giving a big all hands and like throw their big idea up there, and, and then it just kind of looks like bomb throwing. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the like exec Q and A sessions are maybe not the like best like. Well, let's go out and challenge the like challenge the whole conception of the company um, times. Yeah, uh, um, but I you know the, the flip side of that, I came into Yammer actually as a sales engineer. I'd been a product manager before, uh, but I but not a resume that would have worked at Yammer. Uh, the day that the new VP of product started, <laughs> like there was a happy hour, and I literally hit him up that night. I'm like, hey, I've been a PM before. I'd love to help out. Here's some things I've thought about, you know, that kind of stuff. Totally blew me off. But I was a PM four months later, so it worked out eventually. Um, all right. So we get this question a lot, and you can be as circumspect as you want. <laughs> but, like, what – like, how do you tell the difference as an IC whether or not, like, you're just unhappy and things aren't going the way you want or whether the exec team isn't really delivering the the expectations for, like, like the, the guidelines, the expectations, the leadership that a company needs? The signs of a healthy uh, exec organization are pretty easy to figure out, and it's basically – uh, if I go to another team and ask them the question that I just asked my boss mm-hmm. and they give me a different answer than my boss, then we've got organizational dysfunction. There's like a serious lack of alignment. And the bigger thing it is, the worse the alignment is of the company culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something you have to think about a lot is just like if you are arguing with uh, – you are just arguing with somebody in marketing about some project that you think is a bad idea. It's not um, that marketing person's fault. Their boss told them to do it. And did your boss agree that that was a good idea? And if not, then, like, eventually it goes back up to the exec team's, like, prioritization of how we use all these things and our alignment on, like, whether or not we decided that that was a thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my fix for that as an exec is basically if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I just argue with somebody in marketing, I don't go try and fix the situation with those two. I grab the head of marketing, and we go figure out what our stance is. And then we come back to both of them and say, here's what the official stance was. And that's part of the, the team one kind of dynamic. So, I mean, imagine a scenario, though, where, where like, you don't necessarily have significant access to folks on, uh, on like, other teams, right? So you're an infrastructure engineer, um, and you, uh, you know, so you're managing the AWS deployments or whatever it is. You literally never work with anyone other than other engineers, and maybe the occasional PM shows up and complains about downtime, um, then how do you tell if like, let's say you're just feeling like your life is hard and you don't like it, <laughs> uh, but like, how do you tell if that's just like, like startups are hard versus like the leadership in this company is problematic? I mean, if you're that far down, it might be honestly irrelevant to some extent. Like there are so many managers in between you and that person that like the exec team being messed up might not actually cause that problem. Um, well, so, but, but like one of the things that I might want to know is, is like if I feel like my life is difficult, like I'm basically pushing a stone up a hill, I want to know like it, it, it's less about making my life easier and more about knowing is this all worth it, yep. right? Because if the company is on a success – is like going to be a breakout success, like shit, of course I want to be pushing that stone up the hill. Yep. But if it's not uh, – like, like I know there's no pathway for my life getting better. But uh, but so if it's not going to be a success, like if 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 the company's not well set up, like 
then I don't want to be, then I might as well go push the stone up the hill for somebody else. Yep. So how do I figure that out? <clears throat> yeah, that's great. That's a great question. Um, you know, part of working a startup is that equity is intended to be a meaningful part yes. of our, our <laughs> compensation. So if your equity goes to zero or you leave the company before your equity can be anything, which happens in a lot of companies, <clears throat> then you're throwing away half your salary. You could, should have gone to work at Google and done yoga for two hours every day. Yeah. Um, Sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I yes, it is um, pretty quick. <laughs> to that aspect, um, I do believe every employee is an investor. Yeah, uh, the execs are obviously much bigger investors. Um, the actual investors are the real investors, but every employee has part of their comp tied up in the success of the company. And to that extent, you got to think like an investor in that that scenario. Yeah, uh, investors think people, product, market. Yeah, um, and so people is the people I immediately work with, and the exec team is driving the ship. Product is, uh, you know. Is the thing working? Is it functional? Uh, is it not? You know, does the little blood tester actually come up with the right lab results? Yeah. <laughs> and then market, are we in the, the place where we think we can be successful? And you have to kind of come up with your own hypothesis around those things based on the, the data that you see and what you know yeah. inside the company. But, but like, are there markers that I could look at to basically know, like, is this leadership team going to get us there? I think a lot of it comes down to communication, yeah. clarity of communication. Um, they both have to have... The mission, vision, people talk a lot about product vision. Product vision is just a tiny iteration off of the company vision, which yeah. a lot of companies, you know, give me a product vision, give me your company vision. <laughs> <laughs> and they just have that chicken and egg yeah, thing. I'm familiar with that argument. <laughs> <laughs> um, the goal setting stuff I'm honestly less uh, aggro about. I think if you have, like, at least goal posts out yeah. there that somebody can, everybody can kind of squint at, then you're at least moving in the right direction. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you say, People, products, market. Um, I, I've always taken the view of uh, market, people, product. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I've just seen, I change mine once a week. Probably. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I've I've seen too many like amazing like like companies with amazing products and amazing founders just die because like the market sucked. Yep. And then I've now seen a number of like not great companies or like not not great products or people like do really really well because the market that they found themselves in was just perfect for something there's a lot of clown cars driven into gold mines yeah yeah i I do agree that to some extent some ideas seem to be completely unkillable and some companies bumble along (laughs) um i i worked at a at a at a company where I thought where the market just did, and I, you know, I thought we had an ex- excellent exec team. It was really well run. Uh, had a team that I liked a whole bunch, but yeah, at the end, I was like, no, this people don't just want to. They don't want to buy enough of this product within a quarter to keep this company growing. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think the 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 order of cause like the order of causation is basically right. Like the market comes first in that scenario. Um, the Amount of control you have, however, is not first there. Well, like the, yeah. like well, the, I say people because, like, at the end of the day, if I'm working with people I hate, then yeah. it's going to be no. I, no I mean, yeah. Yeah. there's no question about that. <laughs> not that you can control yeah. people, but I'm, I'm saying, yeah. like, if you're like if you're starting, like, if you're running a startup, if you're uh, a high level executive, you have control more control over who is on your team than you do over like whether. The market is going to like accept your your product. See, I I I I I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think there's like a there's like a fallacy in there, in that like you get to make the choice of whether to join that team in the first place, and the question is like when you're evaluating that, 
like what uh, like what's the strongest conditional? Like to me, the strongest conditional is market hands down, because at the end of the day, like you could have the greatest people in the world like doing something. If the market doesn't want it, it's not going to matter. Uh, and so, so like you, you, you might not have all of the information because like every startup fundamentally is like a, a hypothesis driven experiment, but like you got to have some kind of prior yeah. about like whether this thing might work. Yeah. And I think the amount of equity that you have actually changes that. So like if you're early career and yeah. you're not getting a lot of equity, I would say go like work with the smartest people that you can. Like yep. go develop the broadest, best network, um, and don't like that'll probably be your, like correlated pretty strongly with a good market outcome. So like I wouldn't worry about it too much. Yeah. So I mean, I, but I, developing that yeah. human capital is like what you want to do, and yeah. that is not just embodied in you. That's embodied in the network of people that you have. So so I, I agree with that. The thing is like your probability of building that network or the network that you get is like so much stronger if you're on a, if you're in a company with a high growth uh, trajectory. Oh, yeah. Because then there's like first of all there there's more room for you to spread your wings. And second of all, like there's just more people piling into it every day. Yeah, and, and so like your network happier grows. to give you chances after you've been at something in success. Like there's a there's yeah. a lot that, that that's yeah yeah. I mean, I would say I, I would use all three. I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these are yeah, tiny okay. optimizations for yeah. between yeah. one and the other. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, highly correlated. I mean, I mean, I guess the reason that I say this is because like my experience, like like talking to folks who are who are early career or even later career is like. Most of them don't think enough about the market. Yep. Like they they tend to look at a company and say, oh, are there awesome people there? Eh, there's almost always awesome people there. Like is the product good? Oh, look, it's magical software. And they don't actually look at like what does the market for this look like and how is it going to unfold? And and like that that's where you end up in sort of bad decision land. So like at the very least, like look at that and, you know, I – I, I I would argue even like given that most people tend to ignore it, like look at it first. And before you go and fall in love with all the people, like figure out if this is a market you actually want to be in. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I did a bunch of research into a, um, a VR ed tech startup uh, four like years that. ago. That yeah. sounds awesome. And, and then, uh, yeah, one of my uh, – Five years away from being five years away. Career, career mentor uh, sat me down and just said, it's like the biggest ed tech exit is Chegg. I was like, yeah. He's like, it's $500 million. Like you're gonna kill yourself for the next ten years. Get take a ed tech level dilution all that time to max out at five hundred million dollars. Like, all right, that's all. What talk me out of being a designer? I think um, <laughs> we've talked about OKRs a lot. You kind of hinted that you're not. You're 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 uh, you're on the Otis and Ian bandwagon of. <laughs> I am I am disappointed with you OKRs. <laughs> I think yeah I, I think OKRs are typically I see this whole progression. This will this will actually wrap up some of these other points. Mm-hmm. I think uh, young execs come in, they have four people, and you can tell everybody everything. And there's just a total hive mind. You don't need to communicate anything. Uh, that grows to 40 to 60. And now they're still thinking that Slack is sufficient to communicate everything the company needs to communicate. Maybe they start in all hands, but they definitely aren't creating intranets or like writing out mission statements or stuff like that in a mm-hmm. lot of cases. Um, and then they 
seems like people start leaving. There's some malaise. They bring in one of these employee survey tools that tells them that people aren't connected <laughs> to the goals or missions of the company. And then they bring in and they go talk to their board and their board says, come use OKRs. And they bring in this giant heavy process and they totally jack it up because they've never done it before. So, yes, that's my problem with OKRs. <laughs> but, but there are so many books written about them. Anything written in a book can't possibly be wrong. It's, it's, it's trial and error. Like I think I could write pretty yeah. good goals now that will make people less miserable. But the other thing that happens with OKRs is like people always want to put in a personal one. They want to yeah. put in like two work ones and a personal one. Yeah. Uh, but the work ones then blow up and become the entire quarter. And they don't get to do the personal one. And all you did was make that person miserable. Yeah. <laughs> or something else blows up and the, you ignore the, the – All three of them. You ignore, yeah. the, the ignore all three of them and feel bad about <laughs> – the, like what they have succeeded do, in doing is making you feel bad about making the right choice. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you think that like a lot of the issues around, around OKRs could be fixed by better executive coaching? Totally. Better management coaching and better executive yeah. coaching. Management coaching is one of the first things I do when I join a company. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like like one of the senses that I have, and I've, I've gotten this question from like a number of companies that I talk to, is they're like, well, what process can we put in place to make sure that like data is brought into the decision making? And my answer is no process. You need to look at your at your leadership. And if it's not important to them, it's not going to happen. Yep. And if it is important to them, then it is going to happen. Yep. Uh, because like you can write down, like you can be like, all right, we're going to do uh, you know, for for our features, we're gonna we're gonna do product requirement docs, and there's gonna be a line in there that says what evidence do you have that that this feature will be valuable, and uh, and but at the end of the day, like there is still a person who is evaluating if there's enough evidence, yep. and if that person is good, then they will see when there isn't and tell the person to go and tell the the PM to go back to the drawing board, and if that person is not good, then they won't. And so, like it's uh, it it's sort of one of these uh, uh, it's 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 one of these things where like I I feel like every time these questions come up around like around like goals or desires, they're they're, they're you know people gravitate towards process when in reality like you need to gravitate towards people and people and outcomes yeah yeah and like figure out well how are these people working together who needs to level up in what ways and and how can we support them in doing that totally. Um, I, yeah, I think that that really puts a, a fine point on something that I'd maybe not articulated to myself quite that, all that well is that man, management training like is no substitute for having a goal generating process. I yep. think that, yeah. Like that's uh, like if your management isn't like if your management isn't communicating clearly what your goals are, making them write them down <laughs> once per quarter is not necessarily going to fix that. The other the other bit is I, I often see. That the OKR process is just kind of it's it's stapled onto the existing prioritization process, right? Like there's not really ever made clear like when are we going to prioritize by this thing or when like we, when are we going to prioritize by that thing? We are going to postdict our decision making process. <laughs> Look, we hit all of our OKRs, <laughs> right? So, so I, I think that that's part of like that's part of the the lesson here is that like having a clear and explicit prioritization process is what you want out of the process. If you're not getting a clear and explicit prioritization process out of the process, then I, I loved our all hands at Yammer because David Sachs would just get up there and be like. This year, we're beating 
Jive. I'm like, hell yeah, we're beating Jive. That's, that was all we got. That was all the direction <laughs> we got. And all you had to think that year was like, right, is this going to help us beat Jive? I'm like, yeah, it help us beat Jive. And all the teams came up with their own opinions of what helped beat Jive. I think there was, you know, they could have done more exact alignment, but at the end of the day, the goals weren't all that complex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that, like, the do you let teams, like, do distributed goal? Generation versus is it more of a top down? Is uh, it's, it's all, tricky. Yeah, doesn't it, it just depend on the team? It depends on the team, you know. And what you'll like find it, is it that also depends on the leaders of those teams. Certain yes. operational people will yeah. just say it's a, we're a finance team. We do finance. Like sh- shut up. <laughs> and other ones will be like, or the finance team, we can do a lot more. We want to be embedded in the goals. And what you'll find is the the people on the finance team who report to that executive might have completely different opinions. Like I want to work on. The engineering goal, uh, because that seems to be the most important thing for the companies. How can I, as a finance person, help out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my 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 general feeling about about those those sorts of things is that uh, you can allow the the like bottoms up or like or like uh, kind of uh, distributed goal setting sort of attached to the larger goal. If you also have an accountability structure mm-hmm. where like people understand that there will be negative consequences if they if they if they get it really wrong and not necessarily like, Oh, if they're wrong about their hypothesis, but if they like basically run a process where they've decided that the thing they wanted to do was the right thing to do before they ever thought about the goals, then like, then, then there's some feedback loop. There's some feedback mechanism that basically says, okay, you do not get to participate in this anymore. Yeah. Yeah, There's a, there's a, I think the way I would word it is like the, there's a danger in the distributed system of you not reflecting on, what you did as it related yeah. to what that goal and really taking time to learn from it. Yeah, there's some product management models where I've seen where the head of product basically has no connection to the individual like teams. Mm-hmm. They're completely autonomous units of engineers and PMs and they ship product kind of in the vague bucket of things that they, the area that they work in. Uh, but it's just, you know, when I've seen those products out in the wild, it's just like chaos. It's just like <laughs> extremely detailed one little tiny thing yeah. and then everything else kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like the like holacracy <laughs> nonsense of like, hey, this looks great in a textbook. Oh, wait a minute. This is total anarchy. We haven't figured out how to fire people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I sort of look at it like uh, you, you probably need need uh, uh, some some uh, redundancy in that in that system too like if you're going to be totally distributed like you still have to make sure you've got full coverage which means which like definitionally will mean like you're going to need to have some teams doing very very similar things i tend to be of the opinion that like maximum flexibility is the best possible situation to be in and which means like set goals to know what you might be doing but be ready to change that like in a millisecond, and that is the problem with OKRs. Like, if yeah. you want to change one of those things, it's like, it's like well, no, let's run through a process. Start that six month process. <laughs> yeah. <over again." laughs> yeah, or you, if you like, there's two options with the, the court. Like, the OKRs are done quarterly or half, like on the half year. You have two options. One, you can just ignore them, and then it's no longer a serious system. Yeah. Or you can have a heavy process in place to, to keep them. That's what we need. That, that'll be a job in the next five years. It'll be like an OKR team that just sits off to the side and all they do is manage yeah. that system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like one of the other things that's not really, that's like oftentimes not addressed like like in that in that process as well is that basically like there is a difference between operational goals and growth goals uh, that like operational goal, so like growth goals can be like we want to beat Jive this year. And like everyone focus on like how do we do that? Yep. 
it and you know y- you basically like you intentionally narrow your surface area to meet like a certain growth target but like operational goals like those can get incredibly detailed and incredibly complex depending on what your business is actually trying to do like the entire like even goal setting process might not be appropriate for that yeah yeah, there's a and the, to go back to the, the table group and Lencioni stuff. The framework that they their whole thing is that they've boiled down a bunch of these different frameworks into something that is easy to use. So they basically have you do one top line goal, three or four sub goals, uh, and then what they call their standard operating objective, which mm-hmm. is just like make money, you know, yeah. put out good content, and get leads, and stuff like that. And that's it. Like they don't mandate that you go any deeper than that. Just yeah. so everybody can kind of point to what they're working on and say it's one of those things. You think there's like a danger in flexibility? You know, there, there's a certain way that you can be so risk averse about committing to something that you never actually develop a product opinion about about what you should be doing. It depends on the nature of the company. Whether you know, I think uh, funny enough, I think a lot of early stage startups like have to be hedgehogs. They've just got the one idea, and they don't have enough people even to not be hedgehogs and do mm-hmm. more than just the one idea. Um, and I, I. I when I do, uh, I do a PM 101 class for companies that I work at just to help people understand like what the role is and what the function is. And usually what I talk about is like making little bets and then trying to understand when you make the big bet. Like mm-hmm. when do you assess it and say, okay, here's, here's when we're really going to put the chips down and figure out what you're doing. Yeah. See, I think, I, I think that it is true that we sometimes get addicted to the little bets because they all feel pretty safe. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a difference between get like be prepared to change your mind to, to I don't like, know, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know and I think I think people associate this with like a heavy A B testing culture yep. where yep. it's like you don't you don't know what you don't know yep. so you got to test every single thing. What I will say, uh, especially for ICs, is the um, the most attractive thing it might also be the most politically fraught. <laughs> so you have to be a little bit careful of the uh, the really big – the reason people don't do big projects is because they're putting their reputations on the line. Yeah. The exec is saying, I want to do this thing and they're, they're rolling yeah. the dice. Well, I mean for sure if you've got this idea that's going to be transformational and no one has done it yet, there's some reason why the company <laughs> has decided that that's not a good idea to do it. Like, it, like you, you are not a brave genius for being the guy that suggests that Google put ads on the homepage. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, it's clearly a play you could make, uh, but you, like you should expect that uh, there's uh, you know there's there's friction there for a reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I will say the uh, the best product leaders that I have that like I have worked with are definitely the ones who like they make the little bets, but like understand when they need to aggressively go all in and do it. Yep. Uh, and they're like not afraid of of like the consequences of that. They're basically just like, listen, at some point your chips need to go on the table. Like your job as a startup is to figure out where that is, to like know when when the odds are as much in your favor as they're ever going to be, and just put them down. Yeah, it was a fascinating when um, Jim Patterson, he's a CEO and VP of product later, chief product officer at Yammer, uh, when he took over, we had basically just built all the data infrastructure and we had been running nothing but little tests for like six months or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and Jim came in and the, the mission was, yeah, go beat Jive. He's like, well, in order to beat Jive, we have to have more intranet-y type features. Yeah. And the like product philosophy then became like, okay, if you were going to rebuild the intranet but make it not suck, what would you build? And so we built a bunch of file stuff that you know didn't necessarily boost engagement. We built mm-hmm. a bunch of integration. That was platform yeah. PM at one point, um, that kind of stuff. So it's really about... You have to the strategy 
is the big piece. Yeah. Overarching company goal, company vision, product vision, and then the near term, what, what moves the needle in six to nine months. Interesting. So, so I feel like then that's a pretty decent segue into like the product data intersection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I know you have thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I've seen myself attributed quotes on this. Yeah, there's an article coming out with your name in it, by the way. Should, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> should have told you before yeah, now. I send you to my <laughs> um, yeah, these. Uh, so yeah, I have now interviewed I think on the order of five or six hundred product managers. In the Bay Area. That's um, a big number. It's like half of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, of those, I can count uh, on one hand the number that actually had like functionally used data and A-B testing, uh, machine learning of anything, any mm-hmm. sort, uh, on the job. Um, probably 15 to 20-ish had capacity and cap- capability of learning mm-hmm. uh, those things. And then the rest were just like... I, they, their definition of the function is completely different than my definition of the function. Um, so I packaged together a, uh, a presentation that I've now done in a few different places and a, and a blog post about basically scaring, trying to scare product people into caring more about data. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you succeeded at this? Uh, so far, I've got a good crew now of mentees. I'm kind of using them to incept the product world. Well, well, okay. So, so, so uh, let me ask you this because. To me, there's actually like there's two pieces to this, right? There's there's the part about using data to understand whether your decision making was good, and that's like decision making around like, hey, we want to launch this feature. Is it a good idea? Yep. Uh, or uh, you know, both like both before you ever build the thing of like valuing it and figuring out like, you know, potential impact to like the A-B test that, 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 that runs at the end and all that stuff. So, so basically there's the, there's the like use data to find, to find the truth of the world. So that, that's one aspect. Uh, this, but, but, but that's not the only aspect where like, where like I've, I've experienced PM struggling. Uh, there, there's also the aspect of like using data to build products. Yep. Right, so like you, uh, you know, uh, your uh, recommendation engines, your your search engines, like if you look at every company that has been successful doing that over the last ten to fifteen years, and ask uh, how were PMs involved, the answer is PMs were not involved. Yeah. Uh, and or we took this engineer, we started calling them a PM, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, I mean, I mean, there there was an engineer or a data scientist who like drove that, who drove that feature start to finish. Yeah, which is not to say that there's no companies that aren't successful on a like on that product first or design first vision. Oh yeah, they, yeah, most of them are. Yeah, they just don't build data yeah, products. Yeah, they're they're they have stronger stronger opinions. Uh, about without without empiricism. Yeah. So so the thing that you're looking to do, or the thing you've seen, like I I, I kind of want to get the sense of like both of those. I think the to me actually this we are so we are now where Facebook was in like 2009 mm-hmm. um, is the still the state of the industry for product managers. They're just not learning it on the job, so they're not applying it. So like even the things that we're talking about to me are actually like proto things we should as a field we should be 10 years past those things and talking about the next higher order things we can do with data what, like how would you describe facebook 2009 like what's a ab testing and a little bit of machine learning gotcha mm-hmm. um, so like the data is there you're using it but you don't like you're you're just barely 
you're just barely starting to get into the like the depth portion of it, and you haven't yet crossed over into a lot the, of it's even the in the deepest case, recess, a lot of these companies. the deepest re- recesses of regrettable decisions. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's really so. I go there. I go and talk about uh, multivariate testing. What it is? I talk actually. I go all the way through. I talk about where data comes from, where to store it, how you should be accessing it, where to be looking at it, what kind of data you should be thinking about, how to come up with your KPIs, how to think about your core metrics. Yeah. So the the you know the interesting thing thing to me in in, in starting to like dig into this is, is so one of the things I've seen in in, in product and design driven companies is. Uh, you can get them to the A/B testing pieces and to the analysis pieces. The place where it's very hard to get them to is to understand that they need some kind of data collection strategy, hmm. because like they will never get to data product building if they're not think- if they're not if if they're thinking of of their data as pure exhaust versus versus a core asset yep. that they can build on top of the same way that their web application is an asset. Yep. It's, that's interesting because the two examples of those I could think of, they both view that as a strategic decision, not like a uh, – like they want to differentiate themselves by saying we're not going to aggregate data together, right? And they're going to say like your your data is safer with us, the design-driven company. I mean I mean yeah. that's where they got to, right? <laughs> the question is like, like if, if – you know, if there weren't other companies like doing that stuff really successfully and they hadn't needed to differentiate in that mm-hmm. way, like would they be pushing that? I'm not sure. I know at least one of them was just doing it because they uh, <laughs> thought that like they were going to turn a disadvantage into an advantage. <laughs> <laughs> our dumbness is our strength. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I mean you have to probably – like that. that is especially early earlier stage like – Pulling people away to go build the infrastructure where it's easy for engineers to store stuff is a real nail biter. When it's like one feature might be Series B, <laughs> so it's a, yeah, it I is mean, a challenge. But yeah, the, I, I, I mean, I I would argue for the most part, you don't even really need to do that. Like, you just need to store stuff. Yep. Uh, and it does like in the early stages, like you never have enough data to like need anything other than a, a stock Postgres database yeah. in AWS or GCP. Like I can spin that up. What I tell them in the you presentation, just have to want to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's basically just start segment. Like just get segment running, get it pouring data into something. Actually, start with Google Analytics. It's over. Uh, yeah, Google Analytics is uh, it'll overcount, but it's it's good enough. It'll give you an approximation and trend lines. Anything after that, you throw a segment in there, and now you've got reasonable. All of this, you know, isn't great data, but it's getting better and better. And then you can reason about data and segment. You can point it at a Redshift instance or some other BI tool and start to look at it there. So, so why why do you think we got here? A um, couple different reasons. Um, one. There is a type of company that doesn't really need data at a macro level. Um, I mean, that was every company 15 years ago, right? It's To me, it's dependent on the size of the audience yeah. um, So and, like, the consideration cost of the product. So selling a Louis Vuitton bag, if you're a product manager at Louis Vuitton, you're not looking at data. Yeah. You're going to Paris, you're going to shows, you're seeing what's coming out, what's hot, that kind of stuff. And you're running, like, like uh, market research. And- yep. Consumer panels and that sort of and, thing. You know, up until Office like 365 would probably still today with Office to some extent. It's the same thing. If you're running Office, you're you're building a very specific product for a very specific need, and the use of data isn't that critical. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the flip side of that is, you know, your you know, the Facebook companies, the companies that want to reach massive consumer scale, have to use data because they're trying to capture growth and tastes and changes around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll find uh, most B two B products sit in that um, niche audience space, mm-hmm. and a lot of and there are a lot of B two B PMs. That's kind of the starting point of part of the challenge. Um, they don't use data. They haven't been trained on data. Never used it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the beginning. And then you know you'll you'll interview these folks. They'll get promoted. They'll find jobs elsewhere where they are now VPs uh, mm-hmm. at a company where they probably should be using data and they don't. Uh, they build a team there. They train twenty plus PMs, and that that goes around. Um, and then it's the same thing. If you you know a lot of early stage startups don't have a product person, but they've got the one. Like the third founder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what do we do with the third founder? <laughs> CBO. <laughs> yeah, chief product officer. Here you go. And that person, you know, and if the idea is good enough, the company grows. They hire more people. They don't really know how to do product. They train a bunch of people and they go out and get jobs and become VPs, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, I th- the product manager is a badly specified job yeah, title. Oh, yeah, right? so overloaded. It's an art. Yeah, it's not a science. So I, so I think. I think that that's an advantage in in a sense, right? Like you're saying that this the, here's a key skill that is not like not present in a lot of uh, product managers, but like it's not like not being a good at data analysis or get data access is not core to their identity or anything like that, right? So you can imagine there's two paths. There's one where the if data if products become more data intensive, which they may or may not, I'm not I'm not super sure that like that that would like that that path is laid out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I don't think there's a generalization here. I think there's yeah. there are some products that need data, and there are other products that don't. You can build equally large businesses running down both of those paths. Mm-hmm. The thing you have to ask is which one are you in? I would <laughs> yeah. say because, that there because if you're in the one that needs data and you're not doing that, like someone's going to run you over. I would say yeah. there are a lot more companies that could benefit from data than there are PMs who are skilled enough to staff those companies. Yeah, I guess my, my question would be like for the data, the companies that are that are data companies. Like, do you think PM is going to be a uh, like just not be a thing? Like that that job title is not going to exist within those I mean, in a meaningful I mean, way, I, or is I it? I know that, companies that have gone that route. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like there, there definitely are. But like, that, is that going to be? Is that is there a reason why that's it's not one of those things? Done? You'll see somebody doing the job. Like yeah. they just won't have the title. Yeah, you mm-hmm. still need the glue that goes around and makes sure that everything's going the way it's supposed to go, and the person is kind of. Figuring out the strategy and charging everybody towards it. So whether that's a PM or an engineer, doesn't that part's irrelevant to me? So, so I mean, how, how do you like how do you fix this issue? Because like you know, you know, to me, so you're. It sounds like you're diagnosing the problem as a as as a path dependence problem. Mm-hmm. That like you know, basically, a, a product fundamentally is a role that you apprentice for. Yep. Which basically means that, like, as you roll forward in time, there there's just a path dependence for who actually gets trained to like do this stuff. Uh, in in which case, like, now you're sitting at a point in time where there's just 600 people who are slowly getting misaligned for like some fairly large subset of the roles. Yep. So how do you fix it? Do you retrain those people? Do you? create a new path and basically say, all right, for like these kinds of companies, you only hire engineers to like do this role. Like, like what, what do you do? I mean, within companies, um, you know, for my own purposes, I can train the person to where they need to be. Yeah. Um, so I just find somebody with the aptitude and I can, I can go from there. 
the broader stuff is is challenging. There are um, uh, so I gave the presentation at, at product school, which is a product boot camp here. Um, they do uh, the actual you know a, a cool thing about product boot camps is because it's an apprenticeship position, they can't really teach you that much that's actually going to be specifically applicable on the job. Mm-hmm. But they can teach you stuff like data that will be. And so a lot of times they'll actually push them in a pretty hard growth path mm-hmm. because we can teach you a lot of hard growth skills, and then after that, it's just kind of applying those things, and then that will be your entry back into product when you can find a somebody to mentor you. Um, so that I think those there are a few of these, and they create an entry point. Mm-hmm. And I'm also um, I'm also focusing trying to get this presentation not only to schools but uh, but also to um, outside the U.S. because mm-hmm. uh, this this is somewhat a San Francisco problem um, that we're talking about here. Yeah, and, yeah, I mean the rest of the world has no idea what a product manager yeah. is. <laughs> so when I go to talk about product <laughs> management in uh, Brisbane, I'm not sure Australia, about the rest of rest of the world <laughs> part of that statement. <laughs> so I go give this exact same presentation in Brisbane, uh, Australia, and I. I I said, how many of you are product managers? And like half the room raised their hand. I'm like, how many of you are product managers but don't have the title? And then like, it's the same number of hands. And I was like, okay, cool. We're starting fresh here. We can start how, how many of you define product management as anything? <laughs> <laughs> they have BAs and product owners. It's, uh, it gets a lot more complex over there. Yeah, yeah. The program manager. Mm, yes, yes. All right. Uh, <laughs> Drew, Drew do, you, uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, so I am a, uh, a freelance product leader. I do uh, coach executives who don't have permanent product leadership um, or, uh, you know, if you need additional product leadership help researching new functional areas, stuff like that, that's what I do. So, And uh, where can people contact you? Uh, you find me on Twitter, Drew Dill, D-R-E-W-D-I-L, or uh, LinkedIn, Andrew Dillon, Drew Dillon. All right. uh, yeah, we will Drew, link that in the show notes. Drew is very funny on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. It's not actually I've, business related. I, I follow him and <laughs> like his tweets. Right um, uh, oh, we we have a new website. Yeah, you should go check it out. Um, and uh, we have also added a mailing list. So if you want to know when, uh, as the new episodes drop, we will send out an email and let you know. And uh, we'll include the show notes in there so you get them early. Uh, and maybe even a, f- uh, a few extra treats if we're feeling good that week. Right. Um, you can still uh, give us feedback at smalldiffcast. Um, sorry, at feed.back at smalldiffcast.com. Yeah. Uh, get us at Of Differences on Twitter. www.ofdifferences.com. Um, I'm at Old Jacket on Twitter. And at Ian Blue One on Twitter. All right. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you very much, Drew, for for joining us and uh, entertaining us with your tales of product management (laughs) and and executive leadership. Uh, Stay safe out there. Mm -hmm.